0: Ephesians chapter 4, we are studying in this great letter of the Apostle Paul while he's in prison in Rome, what our identity is, who we are, and that's so important because we've got to know who we were so that we can truly appreciate who we are now and who God wants us to be now in Him and to no longer live who we were, but to live who we are, which is why he talks so much about our identity. So I want to pick it up actually, in verse 24 of chapter four, where he told us about laying aside the old man in verse 22, and now look, and put on the new man, the new nature that we have through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and it, who has been created in God's image in righteousness and holiness that comes from truth. The first thing we see about our identity here, or we continue to see about our identity, is that God always intended for us to be his image bearers. Think about that. That, that just literally, that one thing just, I have a hard time with that. In a sense, it's like, God, You're so amazing. Why would you, the infinite, perfect, holy, however you want to magnify and talk about God and all of his greatness and everything, why would you choose? Because it wasn't a have-to case. Why would you choose to create human beings as part of your creation and say, out of everything that I created, I'm going to imprint myself in and through them. And I'm going to actually give them the privilege, if they truly understand it, and the honor to carry my image with them. That that I want them to resemble me, and as they resemble me, then they will represent me. Because that's really what the word image means all the way back in the book of Genesis when God created mankind in his image it meant that there would be a resemblance in some ways not in all ways obviously we cannot be all-knowing like God and we cannot be omniscient we cannot you know know all things we cannot be almighty be all-powerful but there are certain attributes of God that we can resemble, that we can share with him. And God always meant it to be that way. Not, again, only that we would resemble him, but that we would represent him as an accurate resemblance, which is why Paul says to the Ephesians, put off the old man and put on the new man so that you can be an exact, accurate representation before others of who God really is and what he looks like. You are his image bearer. He has imprinted himself. And, and obviously, as we said, in the fall of mankind, back in the book of Genesis, God's image was marred. It was messed up. You couldn't see God anymore because of sin. So when Jesus comes into our life and saves us and the Holy Spirit comes in, then God can literally begin to recreate us in his image and we can start to look like he intended for us to look all the way back into the Garden of Eden. And we can start to bear his image once again in this world and not only resemble him but represent him, you see. It's an amazing concept that we not only were created initially to bear the image of God, but through salvation, in a sense, we now have been recreated as God's new creation to bear his image. So every day, think about this. I am a light, I'm an image bearer of God. I carry inside of myself and then through myself, literally the image of God, He has imprinted himself upon me through the presence and person of the Holy Spirit who lives within me. And that means that, that I can begin to resemble God in some ways. And others can see God in me. Now, with that said, there's a lot of things that Paul could have used as evidences of God's image in us. But he picked out six in verses 25 through 32, and I want to share each of them briefly with you tonight, and then we'll move on to some other ways that we see our identity. The first is notice verse 25, speak truth. Lay aside falsehood and speak truth. Be honest, be trustworthy. Be truthful as we go through life. What we say, let it be true. Let it be real. Let it be honest. Why? Notice with every one of these, he gives us sort of a motivation or a reason why. And notice here why we should speak truth to one another. Because we are members, verse 25, of one another. Again, because he's talking to Christians. And he's saying, Don't you realize that if you start to become dishonest with each other, you hurt the entire body? That the entire body is negatively affected when one of us or a few of us stops being truthful and transparent and honest and trustworthy with each other because we're all connected together. And so he says, Be truthful with one another. The second thing, verse 26, be angry. (laughs) Now, yeah, I realize it goes on to say, and sin not. But for right now, I want to stop with the first two words. Because sometimes as Christians, we read that so fast, and we don't realize He's actually telling us that there's a time to what? Be angry. There's a time to be upset about things. That we can become so indifferent and so passive in even thinking that any expression of anger in me must be sinful and not all is you and I can express righteous anger. Anger over the things that God is angry about and gets angry about. And yes, guess what? We know from the Bible, God gets angry. And so if you and I are going to resemble the image of God, there's times where we, it's okay to get upset and be angry about things and about certain situations. It's okay to let that emotion of anger out as long as it is expressed under the control of the Holy Spirit. Now, he does say this. There's also obviously times where we can express sinful anger. and We do that way more than we express righteous anger. And obviously, that is not resembling God. Think about all the times that God could express anger in a sinful way, and doesn't. But there are times where in his righteousness, God gets angry. I'll just give you one biblical example. When Jesus went into the temple and turned over those tables of the money changers and says, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. He was angry. And everybody knew it because there's times to get angry about things. But he does go on to say, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon the cause of your anger. Get it out, express it in the right way, but then let it go and keep on going. And especially if it's not righteous anger, it needs to be dealt with and not sit there. Because notice something. He's saying if it sits there, and if we allow it to sit there too long, it's going to develop into other things, other ways of being expressed. It's not going to end up well for us. In fact, he even goes on to say, and here's another motivation to learn how to process anger properly. If we don't, verse 27, what are we going to do? We're going to give the devil an opportunity. Literally, a base of operations. It's a military term. It was used in Bible times of armies that literally would set up sort of a a headquarters or a, a place of operations whereby other operations would flow out of this base camp. And he's saying... When you and I don't handle anger well, we literally are plopping a base of operations for the devil right in the middle of our minds and our lives, and then his tentacles go out into all these other directions, and we end up having all these issues in our life because of this anger that is unresolved. Paul says, be angry, but then resolve that anger, let it go, and move on. And don't let it fester. Don't let it just dwell inside of us. Or else the devil is going to see that open door in our life and he's going to come in and he's going to start to really play havoc. Especially with our emotions. Because so many things come from anger. You see. Third, verse 28, labor doing good with your hands. Now, obviously, first he says, don't steal any longer. Work. Develop a work ethic and realize that work is honorable before God. That God considers work an honorable thing. But notice something else. Why here? Are we exhorted to work? Notice at the end of verse 28, so that we can share with others. Not so that we can hoard. Not so that we can, as the rich young person, just build bigger barns and and bigger storage units and keep storing all of our stuff up and up. No, work hard so that you not only have your needs met, but so that you and I have a little extra so that we can share it with those who have a need. That's the motivation for working. Not just to have our own needs met, but to be able to help others out when they have a need as well. So, first, speak truth. Two, be angry but don't sin. Three, labor so that we can share. Fourth, I'm going to say it this way, verse 29 Use our mouth as an instrument of grace. Use our mouth as an instrument of grace. Hang in there with me. Verse 29, you must let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only speak what is beneficial for the building up of the one in need, that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul's saying, let everything that comes out of your mouth bring a person to a place of grace where they are in an environment of grace. You see. How do we do that? Well, by speaking what is only beneficial and able to build somebody up. Put them in an environment where they are wanting by what we say to grab a hold of the grace of God, and be able to, to keep growing and moving forward and maybe getting over things themselves. Let me even illustrate it this way. There were coaches in my past, there were teachers in my past that could give me constructive criticism, we, we say. It's not what they said. It was the way they said it that made it so receptive to me that I actually wanted to do it. There are other people I've had in my life, teachers, coaches, fellow Christians, (laughs) who have, say, criticized in such a way that it just turned me off. It just shut me down because it wasn't coming from a standpoint of where you really felt that they were truly wanting to help and support and encourage and build up, you felt like you were being torn down. And Paul says that is not an environment of grace where they will sense grace, where they will experience grace, where they will latch hold of grace, where whatever they need to hear is something that they will receive and be willing to accept it and grow from it, you see. And isn't that how God is with us? (laughs) There are many times where the Holy Spirit or the voice of God comes into our life and He needs to tell us something that we need to hear, not something that we want, but He doesn't do it in a way that tears us down. He actually does it in a way that makes us want to do it. Remember, the goodness of God leads men and women to repentance. It's the way God deals with us in such a way that we like, you're right, Lord. I want to do that. That's us being an image bearer of God. Fourth, verse 30, or fifth, verse 30, not grieving the Holy Spirit of God. Not grieving the Holy Spirit of God. And this verse is used a lot by us as Christians. But I just want to take a moment and note the context of this verse. Because how are we grieving the Holy Spirit here in this passage? Well, if you look at the verses right before it, verse 29, and then you even look at the verses after it, verse 31 and 32, the way you and I grieve the Holy Spirit is by the way we treat one another. And obviously here, it's not treating others in a good way. It's treating them in a bad way. He's saying, do you realize what hurts the heart of God, the Holy Spirit, when He, living within all of us, sees how we treat each other? How we tear each other down, how we criticize each other, how we gossip about each other, how we slander one another. How we do things to each other that are not kind and good. That hurts the heart of God. What obviously then in the opposite of that, what brings joy to the heart of God and a smile to God's face as when he looks down and sees his children especially treating each other in a kind way, in an understanding way, in a compassionate way, in an empathetic and sympathetic way. That brings joy to the heart of God. And then finally, 6, verse 32, be kind to one another, compassionate Oh yes, and forgiving one another. Just as God in Christ also forgave you. Always the standard, God. Always the standard. We treat others as God treats us. So he's not asking anything of us that he doesn't do for us or to us either. And these six things, again, may be random to some of us. It's not certainly an exhaustive list, but Paul is at least giving the Ephesians some real practical everyday examples of what it means to be an image bearer of God and to not only resemble God, but to represent Him accurately before others, which then brings us to the first five verses of chapter 5 tonight, where we'll camp for the rest of our time together tonight because we see four other ways to be image bearers of God in these five verses. And the first is found in chapter 5, verse 1, an imitator of God, a follower of God. That's our identity. Not just being an image bearer, but an imitator or follower of God, you see. Very interesting word here that's used in the Greek New Testament, It's the word mimetase, where we get our word mimic from, or a mime. (laughs) He's literally saying, mimic God. Follow him so closely that your actions and your attitude and your speech literally is what God does. Follow him. And and the idea of following him as an imitator is to follow one so closely, not at a distance, so that I can truly keep observing who he is and what he does. And it also then obviously reminds us that in order to imitate God, i got to continue to know God. i got to continue to fellowship with God. I continue to stay close and stay connected to God. Otherwise, the distance between me and God is going to not serve me well in being an imitator I'm going to lose who he is that, that's why you and I you know we can even begin to resemble each other the closer we get to each other in some ways. that's why even he goes on I'm going to talk about this in a minute he even says be imitators of God as dearly loved children you know, there's a certain age even with children and their parents where you and I as parents, and can I say at this point in my life too, as grandparents, where I have to be careful about what I say and what I do around my grandchildren. Why? Because there's a certain age, now they do grow out of this, but there's a certain age where it's like whatever I see mom and dad doing or whatever I see my grandfather doing, I'm going to do it too. Whatever I hear coming out of his mouth, that's what I'm going to say too. Well, Paul's taking that concept of what you and I see in the physical world, what we've seen in our own family, and saying, but that's how God wants it in the spiritual family. God wants us to so be in all of him, to revere and respect him, that everything that he does, we want to do too. We want to be like him, you see. We want to imitate him. So another way that you and I see our identity here is not only by, in verse 24 of chapter 4, being an image bearer, but also by being an imitator. But then don't miss this at the end of verse 1. Another part of our identity, in fact a huge part, we are dearly loved children. Notice he doesn't say we are children. It'd be great if we were just children of God. He says we are dearly loved children of God we should never forget that every day we wake up we are so loved by God as his child and it doesn't matter how long we've been saved it doesn't matter how old we get physically God always still looks at us as his child, and we should always look at God as our loving Heavenly Father, and we are dear to him, we are beloved. No one is ever going to love us any more than God does. Pause just for a moment tonight and breathe in, even though that they're burning stuff outside. And that's what's filtering in here. Breathe in and breathe out God's love for you tonight. Realize how much you mean to God. Because that's a huge part of our identity. And again, we can't resemble God and we can't represent a God of love, if we have never truly received God's love? How can we project that kind of love to others if we've never really experienced it ourselves? We've got to open up our hearts and truly allow God's love to just be poured in through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Then he begins to talk about this love. He sort of then goes, ah. You know what he says to us, verse 2? We just need to live in love. He says, you as a Christian just need to live in the atmosphere of love. Drown in it every day. Stay under it. Don't get out of it. Every move that you and I make, do so in the atmosphere and in the environment of the love of God both for ourselves and as we interact with others. Stay in love. Live in it. Now, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I'll give you the outline for next week. Because I had originally divided these messages up to where chapter 5 was going to go from verse 1 through verse 21. And there you see three ways that Paul exhorts the Ephesians to, to live. In chapter 5, the first five verses, we are to live in love. Next week, we're going to see this. In verse 8, he says we are to live in light or to live as light. And then in verse 15, we are to live as wise. So we'll talk more about those next week. But here's what I want us to see tonight from these first five verses. Paul then really dives into a little bit of What does real God-like love look like? And I want to give you two things here from this passage because he does tell us here a little bit about what God's love doesn't look like. Verse 3, Among you there must not be either sexual immorality, impurity of any kind, greed, as these are not fitting for the saints of God. Verse 4, Neither should be vulgar speech, foolish talk, or coarse jesting all of which are out of character. In other words, all of this behavior that I've just told you, that's not love. But here's what is love. Two things, two primary things, Paul says. You'll know where real love is, verse 2, because real love sacrifices, just like Jesus sacrificed. Love sacrifices, because he says... I want you to live in love and love others just as Christ, verse 2, also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Love sacrifices. Listen, especially based on verse 3. And I don't mean to demean sex. Sex has its place in, obviously, the right relationships. But any human being can have sex. What about sacrifice in our relationships? That's where real love is seen. Sacrifice. You know that real love is somewhere in a relationship when you see sacrifice. That's God's kind of love. And the second thing Paul points out here in verse 4, notice after he says all the things that love isn't, that the end of verse 4, but rather thanksgiving, you know what else is a sign of real love? Love appreciates. (laughs) Love not only sacrifices, love appreciates. Love not only thanks God and lives a life of thanksgiving to God for all that we have in Him, but if we love others, we will appreciate them and who they are and what they do for us. That is a sign of real love. So Paul's saying, I'll give you two things here. See, again, it's not an exhaustive list, but Paul's just trying to drop some some really good stuff in on the Ephesian church to say, I'll give you some, if you want some examples of how to flesh this out, then I'll show you. Here's living in love. Live live sacrificially, because love sacrifices, and live appreciatively, because love appreciates. Love always thanks others for what they do and who they are. And then he says this, another part of our identity that I passed over, but I want to go back to at the end of verse 3, and then I've got one more at the end of verse 5, and then we'll wrap it up tonight. He's called us image bearers, verse 24 of chapter 4. He's called us imitators of God, chapter 5, verse 1. He's called us dearly loved children, the end of chapter 5, verse 1. And now the end of verse 3, chapter 5, the saints. That's part of our identity. We are called in the New Testament the Saints of God, not the New Orleans kind. The Saints of God. What does that mean? The word saint simply means one who is devoted to God. And thereby, because one is devoted to God, one is distinct. One is not like the rest. Because of their devotion to God, they, they stand out. They're separate. That's what the word saint means. One who has been separated unto God. We are God's possession, and we are so devoted to God that by the way we live, we live differently than others. And of course, that's what Paul's been talking about to the Ephesians. Don't live like you used to before you became a Christian. And don't live like those who don't know God now. Put on the new man. Be a saint. Be a saint. One more. And this, again, just sort of like at the beginning, being an image bearer of God, this just blows me away. Paul says in verse 5 of chapter 5 that there are consequences to disobedience. But he also reminds us at the end of verse 5 that God has always intended for us to have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. See, what he's saying here is, every Christian has a place in the kingdom because we have a place based on grace. Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, I will receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. Every last Christian will have a place in the kingdom, a personal space that Jesus Christ himself has built for each of us. But not everyone will have an inheritance. An inheritance according to the New Testament, is a position of responsibility. It is the privilege of ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ. Every true Christian will be a part of the kingdom, but not every Christian will have a position of responsibility. What is that based on? Our faithfulness throughout our Christian life. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you faithful over many things. I will give you position of responsibility. So notice something here. Paul's saying part of our identity is that God always intended for us to be rulers, for us to reign, not just simply to, to occupy a space, but to rule over a space to reign over a space, to take that space and say, that's mine and I'm a steward of it and I'm going to manage it as well as I can. Again, go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Is that not what God intended when he placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? He said, it's all yours. Name the animals. Do this, do that. I'll give it to you. I want you to rule and reign over it. But when sin came in, they were then unable to be the rulers and the reigners that God always intended. So again, through salvation, through our redemption, God is now recreating a race of rulers and reigners. And God is saying to all of us as Christians, I don't want you to just sit at my table in the kingdom. I want you to rule with me and reign with me. I want you to have a position of responsibility because that's what I always intended for my children to be. I want to use that tonight in ending as an encouragement to each and every one of you. I want you to wrestle with this for a while because I think it needs to be wrestled with. No matter where you are as a Christian right now, God intends for you more than maybe what you're seeing for yourself right now. You see yourself here, in the kingdom, and God sees you up here. And the reason I want you to wrestle with that is I've had to wrestle with that throughout my life. And I've had to realize that God has more for me than what I can see in myself, but that I shouldn't let me or anyone else limit what God sees for me. Going back to even the worship song that we sing sometimes, you define me, God. Let you define me. It always goes back to that. Let God alone be the one to define your life. And so many Christians, they don't see themselves. They, they read the, the verses in Revelation, we will rule and reign with Christ. Do you realize that God meant for you to be one of those rulers and reigners? God sees more in you than maybe you've ever seen in yourself. And so I hope tonight that as we continue to move through even our worship series, and when we move through as a church, and we continue to grow together and press in towards God and experience His person and presence, that more of us will open ourselves up to all that God has for us and that we will not stop short of whatever God has for us as a church or as individuals. Because Paul is saying to all of us, not just to the Ephesians, here's our identity as children of God. We are image bearers. We are imitators. We are dearly loved children. We are saints, and we are rulers and reigners with Jesus Christ. That's who we are. Let's wake up, and let's stand up. And let's become who God saved us to be. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight that you are a God that, Lord, always seems to see more in us than we do in ourselves. We stop short of all that we could become Many times because we don't see ourselves the way you see us. And God, I just pray that through experiencing you, God, that we would realize that we are dearly loved children and that you've got us being part of something so much bigger than we could ever imagine. And and that, God, we've just got to trust you, our loving heavenly Father and realize that you've put more in us than maybe we've ever expressed and and released. God, that you want to do more with our lives than we've ever given you credit to want to do, and that we would truly go beyond the boundaries that maybe others and, and ourselves have put up around us, and God, we would just release it all to you and give it all to you and be set free, God, in you once and for all. Lord, come visit our church and set our church free to be who you want the Oasis to be, not who we want it to be, not who others want us to be, but who you, God, want us to be. You have given us a holy anointing, God. May we live that anointing out. These things we ask in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you on Sunday.